What's up, Dialed fam? Welcome to episode 166 of the Dialed Health Podcast. My name is Derek Teal. I'm the owner and head coach here at DialedHealth.com, which is strength training for cyclists. And on today's episode, I sit down with Alexi Vermeulen from Jukebox Racing to talk specifically about the gravel worlds that just went down in Italy. On the start line, he was deep in the grid and moved his way all the way up to 33rd. So he has really good perspective as to the chaos that ensued on this race. And I wanted to ask him all about it. I had very specific questions, so we're going to go through those and then transition into talking about the Lifetime Grand Prix because his last two victories, both at Schwamigan MTB and the Rad Dirt Fest, have moved him into second overall, which has really solidified himself as a front runner for this series. But if that doesn't mean anything to you guys, you might actually know Alexi as Willie's father. This is Sir Willie the Wiener Dog I'm talking about, who you'll find on Alexi's back during a lot of his training rides, which I'll be sure to leave his Instagram handle along with Alexi's down in the description below. After this conversation, we're going to dive into the weekly thoughts where I go into detail on some of the announcements that I'm going to tell you right now. These are super exciting, and I think it's going to make for a really cool month at Dialed Health. The first is that the Dialed Health custom riding kits are now available for purchase. I will make sure to have the link in the description, but I'm so excited to see you guys repping this because we have taken our geo design and made it dark to withstand the elements of winter. So instead of a lot of whites and light blue, it's a lot of blacks and dark blues. And the logo is still on it. It's still the same design with the topography, the granite texture, but it's also simple enough and clean enough to where I think this kit is going to last for a long time. And that's why I actually wanted to provide items for both winter and summer in this store. Because depending on where you are in the world, you're going to want different layers, what time of year it is for you. And you'll have the option of running anything from a full aero race suit to full length thermal bibs with a thermal long sleeve and jacket and neck gaiter over the top. So go and check out the items that we have available. It will only be live until October 30th. Two weeks. That's it. It's actually less than two weeks as you're hearing this podcast. And after that, I honestly don't know if it's going to come back. Now, the next announcement is that the off-season road program drops November 1st. We took two full days to film this program. Usually, we only take one. But we spent extra time on it because I wanted new videos for every single movement. And I also wanted to make sure that I didn't rush this program. In fact, between the two recordings, I had Josh Rasmussen, who's co-created the Total Body Corrective Exercise Program. He actually looked over it and sent back some really valuable advice. So we ended up changing one of the warm-ups, and we also ended up changing the tempo of one movement. It was subtle, but it really made a huge difference. And having his eyes on it was reassuring for me as well because this is a four-month program that's periodized from muscular endurance all the way through hypertrophy, strength, and peak power. And the goal is to have the most effective off-season possible off of the bike so that by the time this program is done, you can either move into a maintenance mode or maybe you have some extra build time and we can tack something on top of it. So stay tuned for that to drop November 1st. Now, November 3rd, the Everest Rome video drops. This covers the 24-hour ride that I did last month, taking me from the Sacramento Valley up and around Lake Tahoe. This had me crossing up and over the Sierra Nevada mountains twice, where I rode in total 326 miles and climbed over 29,000 vertical feet as one big loop from front door to front door, and we documented the whole thing. So please stay tuned to that. I'm really excited for you guys to actually see what happened. And the last announcement is the thank ride. Now, this is more specifically for the locals, but I'm sure anyone would hear what my idea of the perfect Thanksgiving morning ride is because 
That's what this thing has turned into. We start early. We've had a group of over 40 for the last couple of years. Nice, steady pace up to one of the best coffee shops in our area, Poor Choice, where we're served free pastries and free coffee from the owner and his son. We hang out, we chat, we cruise our way back down, all with plenty of time for you to get home to your families and not stress anybody out. That's the goal. A super fun ride free coffee. And this year, we're actually going to be giving back to our local community a little bit, which I'll talk about in the weekly thoughts. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Dialed Health Podcast. If you're enjoying it, please leave me five stars on whatever platform you're choosing to listen on. Make sure you drop a simple review, just like, I love it. It's great. I learned about strength training. I learned about cycling. Awesome guests. Whatever you want to say, you guys. Good energy, okay? That's all you got to write. Keep it simple. And I appreciate you listening. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode with Alexi Vermeulen. Okay, Alexi, I want to go straight to the start line of Worlds because I think the whole cycling community has been wrapped around this race in the last week. And you were there in the thick of it. So first off, where how do you get the start selection for that race? Because it sounded like you ended up in the mid pack to start out. Yeah. Uh, let's go, let's go straight to Venice. Let's go straight to Italy. So the UCI has this series that happens throughout the year, kind of like the lifetime grand prix, but around the world. Um, most of us have always been for some reason against doing it because we are so proud of what's being grown in the U S I think. Um, and I was the same way. And then this year with the first USA cycling nationals, that was not a qualifier for, the world championships. And sometime in the middle of the year, I kind of thought, well, I'll take a run at that and see what happens. Um, and from there, USA cycling kind of helps set things up. Um, there's a discretionary form you can fill out too. If you don't auto qualify and you want to go to go to race anyway for the U S and, but without doing that series, you can end up starting in the middle of the pack or further back. And with, um, 240 starters, it can be quite a slog to get to the front. Oh my gosh. So you guys, and I say you guys as in the the selected USA team, basically all ended up mid-pack to start. It, it, it seemed like with the exception of Luke Limperdi, was he on the front to start? Uh, there was actually two guys ahead of him. But so the, the point system worked as in if you have road or XCO or cyclocross UCI points, those are taken at half worth. So if you had 100 points, you have 50 um, and then the gravel world series that happens around the U S um, the w- only one that was in the U S last year was in Fayetteville two weeks after unbound that Ethan Oberson won. Those are taken at full value. So then Luke had a lot of road points taken at half value. So he was started, I think 75th place. Keegan had a lot of XCO points to points from Cape Epic. So those were taken at half value and you, you think he started 90th. And then like, I think I had eight points or something left from my road career. And so I think I started like 150th and then Brennan Wirtz and Payson and Zach all started like the 180s, 190s. Um, wow. So they was, had the call order all the way through the entire field. It wasn't like we do a call up of the top 10 and then everyone shows up early like they do a BWR to claim a position or jump the fence to get in last minute. And none of that's happening. No, I mean, we were all like sitting at dinners the night before, like this, there's no way they're going to grid start every single person and call one by one. And sure as shit, they did. They'd call the name and the number and you could not leave until your number was called. And it was, I really? mean, they, they grid started at 235, 40 people. 
Oh, that's insane. Which had to have taken, I'm, you know what I'm thinking of is like a, a graduation from a university. It's like calling every person up. So that must have taken 30 minutes at least to just get yeah, situated like a, in the start. A good 20. A good 20. Um, wow. I mean, they were, fa- they were fast about it. Um, the funniest part that I like kind of got skipped over and no one's really going to talk about, but I was like, I lined up, you know, I think my number was like 147. And Payson and Brennan were supposed to be like 40 people behind me. And all of a sudden they show up one line behind me. Like, what just happened? They're like, the Italian woman forgot 15 numbers in English. And so she just skipped them on accident. And so when they heard their number call, they just went and she skipped from like 160 to 180. No way. So like it was just, I mean, it was Those 15 athletes though just got thrown on in the end because it's not like they're going to be able to, did they end up coming in between you guys like later on in the start? No, I think they just kind of they kind of just threw themselves. The minute they realized they'd been skipped, they just like, oh, you just skipped us. And I think she realized, but Brennan and Payson were smart enough to just like the minute they heard nice. that number, go. Because um, nice. I mean, that's how the entire race was, right? And I'm sure we'll get into it, but like racing in Europe is if, if it's not taped or there's or there's no volunteer standing in your way, like the course is full game. Like, yeah, you want to take the farm field, take the farm field. Um, and that's kind of how the start was too. It's like if you could move up or if someone happened to be like standing aside, like going pee or something, take the position. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's chop or be chopped. So then it makes me think of the video I've seen go- going around of that hairpin where pe- there, the road goes all the way around. It's a full 180 hairpin, but there's this grass shelf that people started riding down before you got to the technical road. None of it's taped. And to see people cutting in didn't surprise me because I come from downhill or, or enduro, and that's the only rule. You stay between the tape, and if there's no tape, you go where you want, right? For, I mean, with so within reason, <laughs> you know. So when I saw that, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's awesome!" It's also crazy that dudes moved up fifty positions because they cut, you know, a hundred feet early. But again, this is like fair game. So, how early on was that itself? Uh, that was about. Four or five minutes into the race, I mean, it was. Oh chaos. my gosh! The start, the start <laughs> lap was like the way I try to explain to people is it's a, it was a mix between like a cyclocross race and a f- like full on XCO short track start lap. Like it was, we started up a dirt hill for 150 meters, like straight up, like eight percent soft dirt, hard left, hard right, and then you're in like literally a cyclocross grid they made on the grass, like circles, really, like going six to eight riders through this thing, trying to just you know get two or three positions came out onto like a multi-use path that was probably, you know, five, six feet wide on gravel, a couple hard right turns. And we're like going around this lake. And then when you get to the far side of the lake, it becomes asphalt. And that's that kind of lead into that U-turn you saw. And then as we make that U-turn, we turned back on and went back up to the start finish to head out on the race course. Um, so that whole thing was like two and a half K and it, yeah, it's, it's crazy because everyone rode that and everyone scouted their lines and you still could not have predicted how crazy it was. Was the intensity as high as a one hour cyclocross race in that start? Oh, it was flat out. I mean, I didn't, I like just didn't look. You're, you're just constantly trying to move up. And the, the funny thing when there's that many people, like I've done a lot of races, I've very rarely raced that many people. You, you think you're not moving up at all. You're like, dude, I am sprinting at 600 watts, 800 watts consistently. And you're like, I'm passing five people. And then 25 seem to seem to pass me on the left side. And you can't get in your head about it. Cause otherwise you just, you don't move anywhere. Um, but it was crazy. Less than 40 minutes in, we kind of hit this road, became single track and stretched out. 
And there's some pictures there and Pace and I are looking at video after where you're like, it is split into like eight or nine groups less than 40 minutes into a professional world championships. And like, you're like, that is the definition of how hard this race was. Wow. That, so I love that you say I, I wasn't even looking, uh, AKA like at your power or numbers or anything like that, because no matter, you know, people obsess over race plan and race strategy, and it's good to be prepared to do your course recon, have uh, goals on feeding and timing. The, these are very important things, but at the end of the day, you have to race the race and you can't just say, Oh, I wasn't going to go over threshold for the first 30 minutes because it's a hundred and whatever miles. Like if the, everyone's doing it, you just have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm the, probably one of the bigger proponents of that. I think first off people should be like, if you're told to go do a threshold test, 20 minute test all out, you should be able to ride within 10 to 15 watts of the number you're trying to hit without looking. In my opinion, like mm -hmm. if I go do a 20 minute test, I usually do the first 10 minutes, just don't look at it. And then from there, you go, hopefully you have more and you can go all out and you've been close enough. But if you can't find that feeling, then I think you need to learn how to work with your body better. Mm. Um, I think power data is best used after the race. There's been many races this year. Leadville is probably the most important one that I didn't use a power meter just because I was like, I don't think this is going to make me a better athlete on the day. <laughs> and I think people sometimes look at that as a negative, but I think it's, and it's not always a negative. If you don't know your body, but that's a thing you can work on. Um, and like, for me, I like when I go with Keegan at the bottom of Columbine, it's not that I think I'm going to stay on Keegan's wheel all the way up. He's been riding like a God. It's more that it is how I feel. And when my body says that's enough, then I can ride a little easier. And if mm -hmm. I look down at my power and the power number is scary, then I'm going to make a different decision based on what I think something is saying that could be incorrect based on, you know, a bad reading or a bad calibration or anything else. I am honestly surprised to hear that of all the events, Leadville would be one you didn't race with the power meter. I've actually never been done Leadville. I've never been out there on the course, but it seems like the most straightforward course in regards to technicality and how maybe punchy it is. Whereas Schwamigan, uh, which you won this year, looked like it was just this flat out punchy two hour effort where in my head, you're with the group the whole time. That's when, why even look at a computer unless you need a reminder of how far to go. And so that would be an obvious, okay, don't use a power meter, but Leadville is kind of surprising. So it's cool to hear how in tune you are with your body and how much you promote that. So how would you recommend somebody gets a better feel for their own power that they should be doing? I think just start doing everything you do, but just change the page in your computer when you start it. So say you want to go out and do a, you know, a tempo workout and you have some 30 second or, or 30 minute or 20 minute tempo blocks. Just don't look at your power meter for five minutes and then look at it and see what your average is. Like, are you close to that number you're trying to mm. hit or are you off? Um, there's days where it's not going to fit perfectly. Like if you're fatigued and it, like, this is why we have the number. Um, but most of the time you'll start to be able to feel and I think it just helps to know that like on the day when the power meter isn't working or something goes wrong, you can trust in yourself more than you trust in this piece of equipment um, mm -hmm. that can have defects. Um, and it's funny, like going back to like Leadville Schwalmingen, I think the reason I wanted it on Schwalmingen is because I knew it'd be a big number. I'm not looking at it during the race, but I'm excited to look at it after. Um, <laughs> and Leadville, yeah. like I could, I could care less. Like it's not, it's, it might be some cool numbers, but like to me, when I looked at it the year before when I finished fourth, 
that was something I looked at during the race. And I was like, I don't need this in my life. Mm. I don't need like during that race, Leadville is so straightforward in my mind. It's like, pick up a bottle, ride up the climb, descend the climb, pick up a bottle. It's so straightforward that it just ends up making you think more than you need to. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that it was a conscious decision of like, this is going to make me a better athlete. It's just mm-hmm. honestly just feeling. Um, and I think as people start to do that, you start to realize that you can convince yourself on days with confidence or just with man, like talking to yourself that you are better than you even are. And you end up hitting a better number than you even know it's possible. Um, quick example of that is like, we had 30 second tests when I was on Yumbo in the world tour. Um, and I had a like ongoing, not an ongoing, I had a short bet with Primos that he dominated me in every power file ever. Um, and so we got on 30 seconds and like, I saw him going as hard as he could. And I was like, holy shit, that's a big number. And I just got on it and I was like, they're holding the bike. I was like, I'm not going to look at this. They're going to tell me when I have to stop sprinting. But it's like that mindset in a bike race is I think what helps you push further. Cause you, all these numbers we train for, it also convinces us that that's our that's our ceiling and that's mm-hmm. not always the case. Wow. That's a great point, dude. The best side tangent ever. And I want to actually bring it back to that moment on worlds because you said that 40 kilometers in the, the whole Peloton's already split up into eight or nine groups. And these are, it, it seemed to me like the, t- the caliber of rider there was 250 people that could all get top 25 at BWR or something like that. Like it seemed like everyone was that fit and ready to go for the most part. So you're all in the groups together. Did you notice, I, I want to know what group you were in at that position and how the pace was of that group at the time. Um, I think because a lot of us from the U S were probably seated further back than our actual strength that, most of us are moving up through a lot of those sections and it was just about how do you move up most efficiently, but also knowing that there's a time cut off in a way, like we knew at 50 kilometers to so 30 miles in was where the big climb of the day started. And if that happened to be hit hard and you weren't in that front group, there was going to be a very difficult time to, it's been very impossible to get back. Mm. Um, so like in our mind, a lot of us had like these pinch points for like, Hey, I'd love to be at the front by seven K love to be at the front by 12 K. We know it's going to slow down there, but 50k was like that's your fucking finish line if you can't get there um Mm. and so i think on that exact spot that i'm talking about i was probably in the third or fourth group on the road from the front um i remember lawrence tindam for those who don't know is old time very very strong Mm. racer um Mm. and him and i were just riding through groups like everyone's trying to like pace line and pace it and we're like we got to get to the front now Mm. Uh, and it ended up kind of messing my race up a little bit, but it's also just like, that's kind of the, how this racing goes is like, I knew I wanted to at least put myself in a position to be there. And then maybe the race is more relaxed than you expect. And you can recover a bit, um, as opposed to never making it to the front, like Mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of guys never did. Um, and so we were just kind of riding through groups and you, you know, you'd ride past a couple guys would get on, they'd fall off and you just kind of keep rotating together and kind of pushing harder than you probably should for a hundred mile race. But mm-hmm. knowing that there's like, there's these other finish lines beyond the actual finish line that you kind of got to hit if you want to factor into the race at all. That's awesome. So you and Lawrence Tendamph push up around the 50 kilometer mark. You're going harder than you want to. People are starting to like settle into their groups. 
at what point did you settle into something? Probably. So before that 50 kilometer mark, we made it, um, probably going like between 30 and 40 K. Um, there was like the first climb of the day. Uh, we all named it the vineyard climb cause it went climb through this vineyard. Um, and I remember just going really, really hard mm-hmm. and, I actually, Lawrence and I lost each other at that point because we both just chose different sides of the road and you're just, you're passing people, people are going back, people are flatting. It's just that kind of the horse blinder situation at some point just sets in where you're just like, you're so focused on the wheels ahead of you and the rest mm-hmm. of it going on is, um, you know, kind of just background noise. And we were very close, kind of like second group on the road coming on the top of this plateau before you descend down to the finish line um, for the first time because we like, started it was kind of a lollipop course and it had these two loops and um on that like plateau uh i ended up bridging across with nico roach who's another and a guy from ireland and made that final bridge and we both got there and we we're like oh well, that hurt right as we hit the foot of that like 50 that climb at 50k and we were like okay here we go mm-hmm. um and I, I made it over and i was, was able to do that but never really settled in um and i think i think nico got dropped almost immediately but I lasted and there's probably 25, 20 guys up there at a moment. And then, you know, it starts to hit the fan. We go into some single track stuff and um, it starts to just be not how you are riding, but like who is in front of you. And I was never able to really get in good position and kind of find a wheel I enjoyed. Um, and so that, that was kind of the moment of the race where I was like, I checked in with Keegan a couple of times, realized that I was going to be more moral support than physical support on this day. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, ended up kind of riding, riding my own race for the next hour and a half until I found my legs again. Yeah, I read that in your Instagram post and you know, it's part of the reason I was so excited to have you on this podcast because you wrapped up the race so well in that. And you mentioned that at that point you felt like you had to you had to settle down until you found your legs and is this when Keegan kind of kept pushing ahead to get closer to the front chase group? Yeah, I think if we went back, Keegan and I could play that a lot better. Um, this is always how you, it's just like playing deck of cards, right? Like you have your hand and you lay a card down and then you realize like, I'd really love that card back. Um, mm. and I think we, in hindsight, like, you know, this is maybe the hot take and uh, brash of me to say, but I really think Keegan could have won on the day. Um, I think we, we haven't, we're not teammates. We haven't done this before. Right. And so that, like that feeling of racing against each other most of the year and then trying to come together for a week can be difficult. Um, yeah. and so yeah, I just like, I, I was not in it at all to get my own result and I wasn't in it to finish top 20. Um, and so like the minute that, that, that separation started happening and like, I saw my group was separating from Keegan's group and Keegan was off the, off the back of that front group at the time, you know, I pushed for a minute trying to see if things were going to come back together and I could help close that gap with him. Like if, if, if my group is going to come back to his, then I'm useful. But if it separated further, like I'm not, I'm not going to TT by myself for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just kind of where it happened where, you know, I realized that everything was separating further and I could just kind of enjoy the race a little bit and kind of, you know, catch on to groups that are coming past. Uh, just with the mindset of like, I do want to come into Big Sugar and finish off the Grand Prix strong. That's still been the focus mm-hmm. for this year. And that's why I'm paid by the companies I am is racing in the U.S. Um, but then also like, you know, the competitive side of you is the best. The minute you kind of come into like the finale or like the last 15 miles, you're like, okay, I kind of want to kick this again. Um, so yeah, there's that weird moment where you're just like, it's not an hour and a half of riding easy, but I definitely wasn't like, hunt, I wasn't suffering 110%. I was just, you mm-hmm. know, riding, moving forward. 
um, trying to catch up on the calories I didn't eat when I was going so hard with the ballistic start and, um, you know, and just kind of, yeah, I mean, honestly already in the race, trying to think about how you can do it better. So the, the card you wish you had back was instead of settling in or, or letting the group split, would you have tried harder to stay, to keep the group together with Keegan to help support him for a little bit longer? Is that what you're saying you would have tried to do? Yeah, I think I had this perception that the finish or the the race was going to stay together longer than it did. Okay. And so when the minute I got there, I was, I that just became a little bit complacent where I was like, Oh, cool. Like I made it to the front group. Like, I mean, you're mm. looking around and like, nobody has like the big number I do. Right. You're like, Oh, you started in the front row or you started in the third row. And you're like, Oh, like I made it like, Holy shit. Mm. Like the guys I finished around in the thirties, forties are all guys who never saw the front. So I raced a very different race than a lot of guys to finish in the same place. And that's how, you know, pacing can work. Um, it's, that's the, the exact point of it is you can finish pretty high up if you just ride a course well, as opposed to just racing all out, blowing up and coming back. And so I think I would have rather say, okay, I'm at 95% right now, instead of trying to recover a bit, push on position and try to focus. Cause I think the further you are up there, the more motivated you are to push harder and suffer more. And the minute that, you know, that kind of allegiance to, to like racing for the U S and, and Keegan gets exciting, you can push further and push mm-hmm. harder. And if I had, you know, not been split off that back and I'd been in Keegan's group, I think the whole race changes. And all it was was oh, five man. positions and, and someone being tired, right? And I didn't have the legs to close that gap once it opened. Um, but if I'm on the back, you can stay and sit on a wheel much easier than trying to close a gap that's opened. Yeah. Well, this opens up so many questions that I have and I'm like flashing back to other races you've done, but I'm going to try and stay focused here. So... <laughs> I didn't look at the numbers of the top five and kind of assume what the start position would be. I'm assuming that the top five, top 10, like you mentioned, even in the front group of, it sounded like about 20 guys or so, you were significantly higher with your uh, number play and further back in your start position. So did you guys go back and look and see like what Mahort started at and Valverde and all these other riders? Not really. I think it's kind of that thing is it's sometimes it's nicer not to know because those guys are so damn strong. Um, mm-hmm. Like you just yeah, want to tell think... yourself they had a really low number. <laughs> yeah. Like they were for sure front row. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like they were obviously those guys you never count out. Um, and I think that's also the, you know, the telling part of this is Keegan ended up having, having a little bit of bad luck with his crash and chasing himself and trying to come back. But like that split that happened from his group to the front with Mahoric never came back. Like he didn't lose it in the finale. He didn't lose it. He lost it when someone else opened a gap early yeah. on, like earlier than I think any of us thought the race would really go kaboom. And from there, you, you know, you try to do the best you can and you hope that things come back together. You never know what happens. Mahorish could flat or anything could happen, but you realize you're already on the back foot. And like, that's where race racing tactics come into play. You can have a race plan or race strategy, but how do you, really put that together on the day and how does it change when your car, when you, you throw a card on the table and you realize that was not what you wanted to do. Yeah. That it's crazy to think about all the things that can happen that are almost out of your control and how many people can win on that day. I mean, I think anyone would agree that, uh, shoot, you might've been a contender for the day with the positioning being a little bit different. And it seems like 
as a whole, the U.S. came in and did what they wanted to do, which was really represent one of the fastest gravel countries out there. And it seems like to me, mission accomplished. So I was curious, did this race course, was it a good representation of gravel? Like, do you think it was a fitting gravel world champs course with all the experience that you've had racing in the U.S.? Without a doubt. I mean, I think we all went over kind of unexpected. Like we didn't know what, like, what are we getting ourselves into? Um, we all kind of knew what the course looked like last year, a little lackluster guys were racing on, you know, 35 millimeter slick tires. And, um, I think it's also, you have to remember that the U S the side of racing that we have is I think very drastic. Like, you know, the, 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 the mud we hit at nine miles in at unbound. Like, I think most people are like, Holy crap. Why was that left in? But that is also part of the course. Like in my opinion, the reason gravel in the U.S. is special is that you have to encounter obstacles, overcome them, and figure out how to move forward. Like if Lifetime were to say, hey, we're going to bring a water truck and just put water one part, one portion of the course, I have nothing against that. It's crazy, but it's also like that's the fun of it. Um, so I think we went over and we had this expectation of what the course would be, and it was just exciting. It kind of had everything. It had technical aspects. It was narrow. It was tight. It was hard to pick a tire. Um because it was always going to be wrong at one section. There was river crossings. The climbs were insanely steep. I mean, one of the climbs hit 29%. Like, and it's like, was it's, that the cement climb that had like the lines going across the road? Uh, crowd toward the end. Uh, it was right before that, but I think that one was like 25%. Like there was multiple climbs. Oh my gosh. Like, insane. Yeah. And like a good example of like, most of us were on one to one gearing, like whether it's a two by or a one by like, and even that was on the edge of being enough. And I just, I don't think any of us expected the course to be as fun as it was. And we went out and did a pre-ride of like the two finish loops, um, all together. And you kind of just realized like, it, it was just, it was just exciting. Like yeah. we for five hours went out and rode in the rain together and you didn't look at your computer once just a fun course to ride or train on or do anything. And, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I did not expect that. I thought it was going to be something very mundane and boring of like, Hey, here's where the, like the course is going to be one here. And then from there you have a selection and that selection will sprint to defend finish with, you know, 10, 15 guys. And we pre-rode and we were like, there's not going to be more than one guy going to the finish. Like it, wow. we didn't pop out on asphalt for the sprint finale till half mile to go. Like you're literally on back, like multi-use pass behind, behind houses until you, you know, pop out on the well, asphalt. The now. whole course. So there was no like 20 mile, open road in the middle of this thing it was literally like that all the way till the end and even the the asphalt you guys popped out on i saw a video of the last i think it was like 5k or something like that it was it was narrow it's a it looked like a single lane road yeah i mean it was like you couldn't you couldn't pass there if i was trying to block someone from passing then no one's gonna pass there um and so i think like it's just it's so different from the u.s and i think that's why there's a breath of fresh air and of excitement it's like that's the fun part about the u.s is if you go to kansas or if you go race in michigan or if you go race anybody else it's going to be different whether it's rocks or roots mm -hmm. or, or, or tire or like you know rocks that ruin your tires rocks that are just kind of pinched flat and so learning how to set up a bike i think is the toughest thing international people learn when they come to race in the u.s mm -hmm. and that was what was exciting about this course like you had to go pre-ride it and realize like oh like i am not gonna make it like all this stuff about like wow his time being faster no question but i don't mm -hmm. think he took the time to go pre-ride the whole course which takes uh, multiple days yeah and probably set his tires up a little bit too like too 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 little psi and just because you're the strongest guy doesn't mean you should 
easily win the race, right? He flatted twice. Like that sucks. Um, yeah. but that's also how this racing goes. So what tires did you end up running? What, what, what did you end up running and what did you feel like was the norm, uh, for width and like what the profile looked like? Yeah, it depends. I don't think you would have gotten away with like a 38 was a minimum, like a Ooh, minimum. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Keegan and I were playing around the whole time. Keegan risked it and he's definitely a better technical rider than I am. Uh, he ran two pretty much, uh, slick tires, forties. Um, I ended up running a little bit of a mullet setup with like, uh, a Kenda kind of prototype, but it's, you know, file tried esque a, f- a smooth, smooth front and kind of a little bit of grip on the sides. And then uh, the rear, I ran a full slick, um, both around forties. Um, and then just kind of ran them hard because you're hitting stuff so hard in a group like that. And you can't see, um, didn't run inserts. I kind of go back and forth on if those actually help a lot enough on gravel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as that's the beauty of pre-riding is you just got to play around with it a lot. Um, and I was just, uh, just wanted a little bit more on the front. Then I was like the back, the back can drift around a little bit if it wants to. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like when you're comfortable on dirt, that's a, and you have that controlled drift, that's a good thing. Uh, more predictable. Yeah. And I think it's just a lot faster on the road, like on the road sections, yeah. a lot of those steep climbs were on asphalt, um, or like, you know, shitty stuff. And I think sometimes just having that on the rear where you're putting more weight, um, and you don't hit the tread, it's just a faster rolling tire. So did you notice any differences between the more off-road focused riders and the more road focused riders out there? Because I know that, you know, coming from mountain biking, when I do a race that has a variety of terrain and I'm going through groups, it's pretty quick. It's pretty easy to tell who spends most of the time on the road versus who is a mountain biker who just decided to do a gravel race and happens to be insanely strong or whatever. And so I can point that out. And I'm wondering at this level, if you could notice those differences between the riders. There definitely is. I think it's different. Like, I feel like the easiest way to to notice like over in Europe or yeah, over in Europe is like, is who has plugs attached to their bike or like, are they hidden inside your down tube storage? Right. Like, Mm. are you ready to react within a split second or is like, Oh, it's hidden and you can get to it, but you're going to be on the side of the road for a minute. Um, I think there's a difference. Like there's this ongoing joke that I claim I'm still a road rider and all those guys are like, Oh, you're a mountain biker now. And I'm like, no, you're just claiming me because you don't want me to be a road rider. Um, (laughs) But like, uh, there definitely is. I think it's all those little things of just how you set your bike up. Um, road is so technically and scientifically fast and it's all about aerodynamics and these different things that I think matter in gravel at the speeds we're racing, but also sometimes they're overvalued that like a more compliant wheel will get you a lot further in unbound than an aerodynamic wheel for most people. Um, dude, it's crazy. You say that. Cause the last podcast episode I did was with John from flow cycling who does all aerodynamics and we were all, this is all we were talking about. So it makes me want to get the two of you together to, to hash it out. <laughs> Maybe you should go on his podcast and talk about yeah. it. But it's fun. Yeah. Like, I think that's the, the, the beauty of setting up a bike is if you have to set it up to your strengths, but also not forget your weaknesses. Um, mm-hmm. And that took me a long time to learn is like, like mountain bikes, a good example. When I first came into this before the Grand Prix or anything existed or COVID happened in 2019, I was like, I'm doing the epic ride stuff, the endurance stuff. And like, I'm super strong and I can ride up these hills with the, the best of them. But then when I have to go down or anything else, I'm like, what is happening? Um, and I was setting my bike stuff as light as possible, you know, no droppers, all this shit. And then guess what? That's not the fastest way around the course for me with my mm-hmm. current skills. And so like learning that like a dropper is worth it. Or like, I would never do Leadville without a dropper for myself. Mm-hmm. 
the way I am, but I'm also not willing to carry three extra pounds on a full suspension. I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of being a better descender for the hardtail and just focus on being good at riding it. Um, so I think you have to just find what is best for the type of rider you are and the way you ride mm. and how you want to tackle a course. And it's not, you can't always look at the person who's going fastest to do that. Cause I can't ride the same as Keegan. Yeah. Um, and so yet like Keegan can tell me six times over that he thinks a full suspension with gravel tires is best at Schwamigan. Cool. I don't want to do that. That does not sound fun to me because I'm going to slide into a tree and then be out of the race. It's been cool seeing these Frankenstein bikes though. I love that all the top pros are experimenting and making those little, uh, those little changes from course to course. It, to be honest, it seems like a lot to think about. And I'm sure that your preparation leading into each race is also a lot to think about. So let's kind of switch gears over here a little bit and talk about the lifetime Grand Prix and how you actually prepare for each race because they are so different. Um, what does that look like for you when one race is over? And let's just say that you are going to Leadville and I'm trying to think of which race was before Leadville. Was that unbound? It was a big gap before Leadville, but yeah, yeah it's it was like, Tushers before Leadville in July. Tusher. Okay. Which is a super climby gravel, uh, race. Uh, and so going from Tusher to Leadville, um, or actually let's go from Leadville to Schwamigan because cool. that's a, that's a cool gap. We've been talking about Leadville. You won Schwamigan. So very different race strategy. What changed in your bike and what changed in your preparation from one to the other? And, and let's talk specifically about like ride workouts and stuff. Yeah. I mean, so I think a lot the Grand Prix is difficult and it's also like you can look at it one rate, like the back-to-back -back races, but also as a series, it's very hard. I think one of the reasons I've found success at the end of this year is like I purposely came in very soft at the end of the year. I will admit, and I have been in multiple times, softer than I planned. Like I came in and I was like, holy shit, everyone got really, really good. Mm. But also I had this mindset the whole time of like, you need to not be a shell of yourself by the time you get to October because you can't gain fitness with the amount we race going into big sugar. Like you can't pretty much in my opinion, from Leadville to big sugar, it's really hard to get better. You can stay the same. You can kind of take a little break and then come back to where you were, but it's really hard in that amount of time to do everything you need to do. Um, did you experience so that last year because you won BWR and then did you feel like toward the end of the year that you did lose a lot of fitness and you weren't strong toward the end? I want to say that you had a couple results uh, toward the end. Like you won the old man winter race, right? Uh, yeah, I, I was yeah. good last year. I just wasn't, I was never great. Like the big goal going into this year was to win a Grand Prix race, right? Not just finish second overall on the podium again. Like I kind of made this decision that like, if it's meant to be, I'll be in the overall. Otherwise, mm. like I want to win a Grand Prix race. And, um, so, but I think also you have to remember that like the roster of the P the, my peers got a lot better. Like the, the talent got deeper. And I think that just like, it pushes the racing further and further and further, which makes it even more impressive what Keegan did for a second year in a row. Um, last year I'd say he was racing, you know, maybe eight to 10 guys this year. I'd say going into the first race, he's probably racing 15 to 17. Um, and that just becomes the Grand Prix has become a bigger thing. It's a validation factor. It's our, it's our standing in the U S that seven weekends a year, you have the best, absolute best field you're going to see. Um, and so bring that all together. It is not always easy to go from these races back to back. Um, 
having bikes set up and not messing with them is very difficult. Um, for me in the early in the year, kind of make a plan of like, what do, what bikes do I need set up? Is anything going to change? Um, so like this year we added one race, you know, um, okay. It's in a longer series. And so I didn't feel like I was bad neck last year, but I flatted early in big sugar and I felt like it took everything inside of me to get to the finish of that race. And I was such a shell of myself after mm. it. I was like, I'm done with this season. Like I'm just kaput finished. And it actually ended up well. Like I, I went to Europe with envy and ended up coming back and winning Iceman. like everything, came, but I needed like a mental reset of like, just go screw around for a minute in Europe and just see what you have and just take a risk at Iceman. Um, and so going back to like bike setup and training, um, most of these races pretty much happen once a month, like Seattle's in April on bounds in, in end of May, beginning of June. And so all the way through, um, it is hard to be really fit for all of them. Um, Keegan's found a way to just find this fitness, but I think most people have these waves that go up and down. And for me, I had to target a couple that I wanted to do well at. Um, and then from there, look at bike setups and how I want to do. So going from Leadville into, uh, Schwamigan, before Leadville, I had quite a long time off. I did quite a build at altitude like everybody is, but I felt like I had struggled so far in the beginning of the year that I was really just trying to build up to a decent fitness to hold to the end of the year. It wasn't like trying to peak at Leadville. And I've said this and not many people believe me, but like I suffered like a dog through Leadville. Like mm. I did everything right. I ate well, like it ended up working out in my favor, but I was by far and away, not the strongest guy finishing fourth at Leadville last year. I was the second strongest guy in my opinion, but it, I didn't play my cards right mm. this year. I think because I felt like I was so, I was hurting so much all day. I just sat there and sat there and sat there. And then people kind of like ride themselves out of the race sometimes at Leadville. Cause it's such a, it's hard, hard to, it's a hard race tactically because it blows up so early and you still have to survive the last 40 miles. Mm. Um, after Leadville, I went into steamboat the next weekend in between Schwalm again. And I was like, okay, let's just go enjoy this race on a gravel bike, on a different bike. And the mindset from like the stress of Leadville to steamboat was very different. Didn't expect the result, had never done the race, kind of played it very relaxed. Didn't look at tactics beforehand. Um, pre-rolled the course. And so I felt like I had the best setup I could set up on my bikes, but you know, knowing steamboat was going to be fast, like ran a very aerodynamic wheel and tire combo, um, focused on gearing, kind of looked at where I thought the race would blow up, but mainly just went out and raced my race and it ended up working out. Um, and then from there I had this build block of like, I think three weeks before gravel nationals. And that was like this place where I was like, okay, this is the only time I have to actually train before these races coming. And it was all VO2 high end stuff that I hadn't touched all year. Um, and that kind of led in, I think just fit really well with Schwam again, where the only thing I really changed from my bike was taking the dropper off. Everything mm. else is pretty much the same. Um, ran the exact same tires, different PSI, but exact same wheels, exact same like hardtail frame, um, tighten the suspension up a little bit, but like, most of the time, everything was the exact same. And all that I really worked on was like, what is going to be needed to win this race? You know, mm -hmm. high end, constantly punching. Um, and that it's not at altitude. So you can go deep, deep, deep and come back. Um, and so there wasn't that many changes. And I think it's just like, it's remembering kind of the workouts going in and kind of just suffering through those so that there's this build into the end of the season that, um, you can kind of race through and kind of continue holding on to your, your fitness. Um, so yeah, I mean, so a lot of that training for me was like, um, 
we did these things called like we called them U intervals, like pretty much a an all out sprint for ten seconds into um, a minute and forty seconds of VO two, and do an all out sprint again. Take two minutes off, do it again. Um, and so little things to like not fail, but like find a place where like okay, I I dropped 10, 15% at the last one or like just pushing the limit of what your body's capable of and trying to raise that ceiling a little bit. Um, did a lot of 30, 30s, 40, 20s. I hate those workouts so much. They're the absolute worst workouts in the world, in my opinion. Um, you just Is it because they're hard to do like the, because there's so much timing to follow or is it just because they're so brutal and they're... Yeah, the mental focus and fatigue going into them and out of them is tough. Like to yeah. me, like... It's not that it's insanely hard. Like we do 20 minute blocks of 20 minutes on 10 minutes off, 20 minutes on. And like you, you get 12 minutes in, you're like, there's no possible way I can finish this, let alone the next fucking set. Somehow you just keep pushing because it's only 30 seconds or only 40 seconds. Um, and in the end, you, you know, we all find like little ways to cheat it, right? Whether it's like, oh, just get to that like last pedal stroke and sit up a second earlier, like little things, but it's the mindset to like keep pushing through Mm -hmm. that I think is more important than the training. Training is a big deal, but like going out and suffering through and pushing is the hardest part. And I think that's what, like I've worked with my same coach since I was 14 years old. And at first it was just like, Hey, can you help this like ADHD kid? Not like not trying to play hockey and run and bike every single day, like focus a little bit on things. And we just know each other so well that I think he knows like what I need as mentally as well as I do physically. Um, yeah, coach, did he sell your parents? He's like, listen, before you get them on meds, I got a workout that might might do the trick. <laughs> it's so funny because like everyone's like, oh, who's your coach? And then I tell them, they're like, who? And I'm like, yeah. Like, I, and that's, I think, my biggest realization with coaching is like you have to find someone who just understands what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, is willing to make sacrifices when you do. Like I think when people look at what I do, they're like, oh, he must train so hard. I bet you I train half of what Keegan does. And it's not because I don't want to, it's because I've put a lot of my priority in like the off the bike things as well as I do on the bike. And to me, there's like, there's a priority list and like, I want to be competitive on the bike, but I also, the reason I left the road is to make impacts on people and be involved and like hang out with the community that it gravel mm-hmm. allows you to. Um, and that does cut into training sometimes. What do you do off the bike, uh, for the community or what are projects that you're involved in like that? Uh, that aren't necessarily just your race results. Yeah. Um, they're all bike related, obviously. Um, cause who would have other hobbies outside of this sport? Um, <laughs> no. So uh, the biggest one that takes most of my time is called from the ground up. Um, that started just after COVID in 2021 and takes three normal everyday people from, you know, their gym closing and needing mental sanity from their family during, uh, the pandemic to getting on a bike and taking on level 100 in five months. And so it's just that realization of like how far away and how inaccessible cycling can be and how you help open that boundary a little bit and help amateurs or people that are getting into this sport and just eventing enjoy this sport and teach each other about, you know, the things that can be daunting and scary, whether it's flatting or crashing or anything else. And so we've just, it's, it's a content piece also, but we've tried to just focus on how do you teach amateurs to help teach amateurs because the thought process is pros are so far away from understanding what it's like to get into the sport. Um, you know, very that, simple element is just like, if I ride past someone with a dog on my back, smiling at twice their speed, it's still going to be demoralizing. Even if no matter what <laughs> I smile or wave or say hi, I'm still that asshole that just rode by you at twice your speed. And so 
to bring that level down, you have to find a way to interact. And so that takes a lot of my time from pretty much January to Gladville when it ends. Um, so I'm really shocked that I have not heard about this and engaged with it because this is such a cool project. It's called From the Ground Up. And you've been, have you been doing it for a couple of years or have you been working with one person and taking them from a beginner to completing Leadville? No. So the goal is not, I mean, the completion of Leadville is awesome. Um, and we got, we hit it this year. This was the third season. Uh, so we've just released. What? Dude, I am so sorry. I've been in the dark on this. It doesn't matter at all. But we're going to fix that right now. This is so cool. Yeah. (laughs) But this is my point of like, I, I needed that other side when I left the road. That's why I wanted to create something. And it's, as you know, with, with your business or anything else, you can say you want to create something, but finding Mm -hmm. space or time in your life to do that is really difficult because in the end I can say, I want to interact with people. And then I get to the race and it doesn't go well. And all I can think about is I need to be better on the racing front. And you forget everything else because who cares how their day went, your day went shitty. And so from the ground up, it kind of, I think COVID was the perfect time where we all were forced to pause and take a break. And it allowed mm-hmm. me to, to really think about where I was and how I could make that impact. Um, so yeah, we're in our third season. Um, you know, there's, there's a series that goes along with it. And so, but we've taken three people every year, except for this year, we took five because we had two ex NFL players take it on to show how hard Leadville is. Um, first year, no one finished or even made it past the twin lakes um, time cut going up Columbine. Uh, same with the second year. Uh, and the, this year we had three people uh, finish two underneath the 12 hour time barrier. Um, and my nice. favorite quote is that, so one of the football players was a linebacker and one was a running back. The linebacker finished sub 12, the uh, wide, sorry, wide receiver did not. And it's just a testament to how hard Leadville is and how much respect it deserves. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know. It's not about finishing. It's just setting this massive goal that is theoretically, like we tell them when they sign up, this is theoretically impossible in five months. It should not, it just shouldn't happen. But dedicate your life to something and see what happens in six months and what changes. And, you know, the premise of any TV show, like you will never take on something this stupid or hard ever again in your life. And everything else will seem a little bit more accomplishable. Well, the motto of Dialed Health is start moving forward. And this is such a start moving forward concept that I can't uh, be quiet about it. So please make sure that you send me the the link to the video or bring me up to speed on this. And yeah. for everyone listening, I'll have that in the description so you can uh, check it out because that's just such a cool project. And I love that you're looking at your career holistically, uh, both on and off the bike, how to have impact and you know, I, I know there's a lot of discussion, especially with top athletes about social media and the difference between an athlete and an influencer and what sponsors are looking for from a value perspective uh, to use all these, uh, you know, social media trigger words. So it's cool to see you really take the extra step and not just be like, oh, I just want to make something that goes viral or I just want to make something that does this weird click or what, whatever. To have that deep of an impact is pretty powerful, man. So. No, yeah, th- that's thing, that. I think that's right. But that's the reality, right? It's like, I, I think yeah. it doesn't, I don't need it to go anywhere else. I just like when I finished second at Leadville and then my immediate thought is just about the people still out on course who dedicated their lives the last six months to this thing. And like mm-hmm. we had Brindley, one of, one of our, uh, part of the family, she was the second to last finish of the entire race in 13 and a half hours. And like standing out there 
with the entire crew. We had people from all three seasons out there just supporting. It's so emotional. Like my result mm-hmm. takes a back seat. And I've, I've said this countless times, but like at some point I could give a shit if I finished on the podium at Leadville. I enjoy that. It's important, but like I need in my life to find that balance between my competitive self and what else I'm doing. And so like, I, I hate the word influencer, but if I'm influencing the right people, if I'm influencing people who enjoy riding with their dogs or who want to get on a bike for the first time, that's awesome. I just, I try to focus on like, I think you've like any media you do, like some people, smart people tell you to focus on one exact person you're trying to interact with. And for me, that's always been like my grandmother. If I can make the grandmother happy or smile or anything else, then like, this is all success. And that makes it so much easier to post on Instagram or any given media because you're just like, there's no way grandma won't like this. She's going to love it. Um, the and, lesson learned, do what makes your grandma happy, people. Yeah. It's and, probably and, like, a good decision. Because like you're saying, social media can, it can become this job. And yeah. I want to inspire and impact people. And I think social media is a spectacular way to do that. Like watching you, like watching Dialed Health grow, I think is a prime example of that. You can reach 10 times, 15 times more people through the internet than you can in your one area. Mm. But it can easily become negative in the way that you think about it. If that's like all of a sudden you start forgetting the people that are in your area and just focusing on what's outside, all of a sudden it's not organic and it's not real anymore. And I think that's what's hard the further we get into this is clicks are a quantifiable way of saying this is successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but that to me, that human touch or human interaction is always going to matter. It's always going to be worth more. Um, and it's trying to just figure out where everything exists um, in that cycle around you. Wow, so well said. I think that people, especially online, I, I think in the long term, you can see intentions through content. And it's the people who are consistently uh, delivering a, a consistent message. I, I think that can be successful and they have to be so genuinely uh, coming from the right place, I think, to, to make it last a long time. Like, it, I don't know, it's something I ask myself constantly. It's like, what's the real goal of this? You know, because you want it to reach the most people and have the most impact, but also why? Like, what's the real why? And so it's good to ask yourself those questions and I don't think enough people are doing it. So dude, I think that's awesome. Well, I want to make sure that people see this project and it's really cool to hear about some of your specific workouts, your transitions between races, even picking out the bikes with the races that you're going to do and scheduling that out a year in advance. So coming into the last, is this the last race of the year? Do you have races after big sugar? I'll race once more after Big Sugar, a home race in Iceman. Biggest oh, it's Iceman. Yeah. That's actually, that's crazy because I can't believe how many people lined up at Schwamm again. Oh my gosh. I had no idea there was a demand for that uh, in that sense. So uh, Iceman has even more people. Yeah, 6,600, I think, registered this year. Wow. That it's, is it's crazy. so like, it's, it's just waves of people from, you know, 730 in the morning, they, like 58 waves of people. That's insane. So yeah. you have two more races. You, I, I'm assuming you're still feeling pretty dang sharp uh, after your awesome performances in the last month or so. So uh, any specific goals to wrap up the year or going into these things? Oh, I mean, let's be honest. I, wanna, I, want, I want to validate myself. and I want to beat Keegan once more at Big Sugar. We all know the task that it, that is is very daunting. Um, but yeah, going to Big Sugar hard and kind of just validate that everything I've done and everything I've proved to myself is 
it is real. Um, but yeah, I think like I, I never expected at least two races ago to be in the position I am in second overall again. Um, Keegan mm-hmm. is unbeatable in the Grand Prix, but I think it starts to open up belief in myself that on the right days, um, he's beatable. Um, mm-hmm. But all these little things that add up and you remind yourself like, you know, Keegan was sick the day before Schwam again and little things add up and it's, it's hard. It all trickles into your mind as an athlete of like, am I actually there? Um, and something just going out with a little bit of abandon at big sugar and taking some chances uh, and just being happy with the year. Right. I think one of the things that most of us struggle with is when things are going well, just being happy with them going well and not mm. fighting for more and more and more um, greed in any aspect is difficult. Uh, and I think I just, I want to go into big sugar and have the race I can have and just come out of it happy. Um, and mm-hmm. kind of finish, like I told you last year, not finish, like feeling like a shell of myself, like just go and race your bike and enjoy it. Um, and hang out with all your friends. Like there's this big gravel party happening after now. And I think it's all exciting. Um, and then kind of going to the off season and reset and plan. Um, one of the weird, one of the interesting things is my brother's getting married over unbound next year. So I'm not racing unbound. Uh, Whoa. So I'm like That's resetting. Kind of, he's the whole kind of, is he doing you dirty with that? Did you tell him, like, dude? <laughs> I mean, if we're if we're honest, I might have just told him to put it on that weekend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I uh, it's it's where it worked out. Uh, June in Michigan's beautiful, um, and so yeah, to guys just could restructure the whole calendar and be excited about new races. Mm-hmm. So I've never done mid south. I'm going to start with mid south and nice. Um, so I think like just being excited and coming into the off season with momentum is always a nice thing as opposed to feeling like you need time off, um, and rebuilding yourself. Right. Like I feel like most of us by this time of the year, skimming, skimping out on the, you know, the strength workouts or the core workouts or the stretching or the recovery. And, um, those are the things that honestly get you through and push you through when you're traveling as much as this, this circus takes. Um, and so trying to find that cycle and feel wholesome and healthy again. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, Easy to say, hard to do, but that's kind of the goal. Oh man, okay. It's always so hard to wrap these things up. I have two more questions, and for everyone listening, Derek, (laughs) you start talking about off the bike training. This was actually (laughs) written down. I was supposed to plug it sooner. So, for everyone listening, these questions, if anything, are for me. So, okay, first question because it's a little bit more simple. Do you think that next year people will prioritize? some Europe gravel races to have better positioning and better putting more emphasis on the world champs. Do you think calendars will change with that in mind? I don't know if other people will, but I will after this. Ooh. I got world championships. Okay. Uh, dude, I like, I'm so pumped on this gravel worlds. Like I feel like it's so good for cycling. So that gets me excited. Secondly, you mentioned off the bike training, how it allows you to actually pull through, um, Obviously, it's easy to say, oh, you know, stronger muscles, maybe even bigger muscles make you pedal with more power. Like these things are kind of obvious, but at the same time, there is so much more to strength training and off the bike work than just peak power. And it's comfort, it's longevity, it's durability, all these things, which I feel like you were kind of hinting at. So uh, going into like this time of year, off season, how much time are you actually putting into your strength workouts? Like I'm, I'm curious on just your frequency, like sessions per week and then what a session kind of looks like. Um, yeah, I've, to be very honest, I've been not great at it since I left Michigan. Uh, in Michigan, I had a great setup, a great team. I had had a friend, you know, I'd go in 
four or five times a week during the off season and just, you know, gain weight and be healthy and be a different person and become durable. Like you're saying, right. Mm. Um, uh, I'd like to say during the, during the winter, it's a, it's a good three to four times a week still, but it's definitely not what I used to do. Like I really used to push my limits and, you know, leave and go, go get in the car to drive home with a stick shift and be like, I don't know if I can do this today. Um, that, <laughs> Anyone that, who's like, driven a clut with a clutch after leg day understands what he yeah. just said. <laughs> um, That's awesome. I used to love, I used to love the creativity. Uh, the guy's name was Mark. Uh, he runs a gym in, in Michigan. And so I used to love the creativity he created. And now I feel like I get a little bit trapped in like the same, just notes on my phone workouts. Um, yeah. So I think that's one of my, like, it's one of the big goals this year is to kind of reset that. Uh, but I also, I'm a really, really big believer in cross training. Um, like I grew up even during road stuff where I'd go play four hours of hockey instead of riding my bike in the winter um, or go cross country ski for two hours. And I just think that first off, it's mental, mental elasticity, like just mm-hmm. focusing on doing something else important. Cycling is a very straightforward thing, especially on a freaking trainer where you're just sitting there pedaling and I don't think it's healthy. Um but secondly, that like our legs, muscles, arms need to move in different directions. They're not supposed to just sit in the same position. Um, my shoulders are, shoulders are probably the worst, most tight things ever because I sit like this all day and like you, you move your forearms, but that's about it. Um, and so I think just trying to round out everything is, is the overarching goal. Um, I definitely do like small plyometric things all throughout the year, especially when I get into like a VO2 block. Um, like lead jumps, single leg hops, stuff like that. But it's typically very short. I think it's one of the things Keegan has over most people is he's gotten to a point where he can do gym workouts without affecting his cycling workouts, which means you have to stay on top of it and build that in. Um, and I think that's why you can see him pushing bigger power, like bigger chain rings and everything else. And because he can push it, he's done the strength work. He has just more power around than most of us. Like at Columbine going up, I told Keegan, I was like, I was looking and my computer that had nothing on it, but the line in front of me. And all I was thinking was I'm doing the same cadence as Keegan and my legs just burn. I'm not screwed. Like my heart is fine right now. And I was like, he's just turning that gear over. And I think it's just, it's the repeatability of what he's done and built into himself. Um, and so I think that's one of my goals building in is the competitive side of me wants to just see what I'm capable of. Um, I haven't stepped, stepped on a scale for probably a year. And I think that's healthy for me. Um, and that, like you just said, you can be a very, very strong, if not the strongest version of yourself at a higher weight than you've ever been at. Um, but it's just finding that balance of what it is. Um, and so that's, that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what you said about Keegan, it, and referring back to those leg workouts you do and what you're doing currently, I think what you're saying is true about him having this balance that he's found and actually repeated over a couple seasons. I know that his trainer art from Wukar fit, he gets it. I, I talk to him online, go back and forth and you can tell that he really understands it. I think it's proven through the athletes. And I wonder for you, like what I hear as a trainer taking in that information is that, you know, what a really good, I'm going to say quote in quotes, good or hard strength workout feels like and looks like, and you've spent time doing it. But you also know what your top cycling shape looks like with very, very minimal stimulus, like some plyo jumps here and there. And it sounds like you haven't struck that balance of maybe something in between, because I can promise you that the leg workouts you were doing are not what Keegan is doing currently. 
And there's like this middle ground where you're still getting the strength you're looking for, but not killing the volume and intensity that's taking away from your rides. And then it can fluctuate slightly throughout the season. So, um, you know, once we hang up this call, I'd be happy to talk to you a little bit more about it because I'm like, I gotta, I can't not at this point. Yeah. Uh, you teed that one up too well for me. So, um, anyways, dude, thank you. Um, it was so cool to pick your brain and, I'll make sure that your Instagram handle is in the description of the podcast. And uh, is Willie's, there any... right? And we... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes. Willie's account. I'm going to put his above yours just so people understand the order of importance here. And so if you guys want to see some videos of Alexi uh, in a full TT position with his dog on his back, uh, or if you want to go watch the uh, From the Ground Up series, is that what yep. it's called? Yep. We'll have that linked in the description. Is there anything else I can plug for you down there? No, that's about it. Teach me how to work out. Deal. Well, thanks a lot, man. Uh, good luck at the last couple stops, and we will catch up with you soon. Thanks, Derek. I hope you guys love that conversation with Alexi. I know it was so cool to ask him the questions I had about Gravel Worlds because after this race happened, I felt like the more I heard about the race, the more questions that I had than answers. And so hopefully this resolved some of those that you had yourself. And I just want to thank Alexi for coming on. That was super cool. And again, it's one of those moments where I'm like, dude, how, how lucky am I to be able to just talk to one of these pros to just straight up ask them what I want to know. It's a, it's a real privilege and I'm happy to record it for you. So let's move on to the announcements that I want to dive into, which is the team store and also the thank ride. The thank ride we're going to cover briefly at the end because this is a little bit more specific to locals, but I want to talk about this team store and answer questions that I commonly get with team stores and why I do my kit sales this way. So first off, this is like my fifth team store, I think with LEL over the last three years. And I go the team store option, even though the name is kind of confusing because you don't have to be a part of a team officially, or you don't have to be a member to it. It's the team store, I guess, uh, route that I'm taking because it eliminates overhead for me. It, and it also handles the payment processing, the shipping and distribution of all the items directly from LEL and taking that workload off of me is huge. To be honest, I don't know if I could do it another way. And I don't know if I'd be willing to put out the investment and have the risk of that overhead just kind of sitting there uh, to purchase all the items up front, just currently where I'm at with, with the business, because it's very important for me to be able to have the members and have fans of Dialed Health be able to rep the brand. But I also want to make sure that if I'm going to take a risk, it's going to be for more something more specific to the product itself, which is the actual website and platform. And, and that's really what I've done uh, all through the app development process and website development process and all that. So that's kind of where this team store came about. It's, it's the least risky option, which unfortunately means it's a short order window, but I don't know if it could happen any other way, at least for now. I think in the future, there's a lot of other opportunities. In fact, I may have just gotten an opportunity to get some regular merch back up on the website because I have a full Shopify account, everything ready to go, but I pulled it because I couldn't keep up with even the random weekly orders I had, you know, just a couple orders here and there, it becomes this real part of your schedule. And with all the stuff I have going on, uh, it just wasn't realistic for me to stay up on. And, and there's nothing 
that will frustrate someone more than ordering something and not getting it when you expect. <laughs> that really does suck. So with the LEL team store, there's a six to eight week uh, delivery window because they have to actually create the items after you order. And I'll be honest, it's another downside to the store for people who purchase, but it also means that, um, I, it, it's funny, I can't claim that the prices are reduced because it's custom and not all the prices line up with the website, but a lot of them are lower than what they would be. And so it, it I've always been very happy with the pricing of the store. Like it seemed very fair to me. I mean, like the men's road suit, it's like 150 bucks or something for a full race arrow suit. And so I don't know, it's pretty cool. So anyways, that is sort of the business mindset side to why I do the store the way that I do. And hopefully you guys understand that. And I, and I appreciate the support. Uh, I appreciate the patience with that whole process. Now, the design is the geo design that we did from summer that people really liked, but we basically inverted the colors. We had the same topography lines, the same granite texture uh, that's inspired all by kind of my local terrain. But instead of white and sort of the lighter version of my dialed health blue, we did black and the darker version of my dialed health blue. And I wanted to make sure that the kit all was cohesive as well. This is something I've never done with kits that have layers, like kit stores that have layers. For instance, even with the summer uh, sort of fall store that we did, the vest was, a it was the same topo design, but the colors didn't line up with the long sleeve. And it worked out the way that it did, but I wanted people to be able to layer up and layer down and have that same look be consistent. For instance, if you have the long sleeve thermal on and you throw the Gibraltar vest on, the actual image lines up. And like you'll have like a little seam sort of around the shoulder, but like the topography lines, the color, the black, the blue, all that, where the logo would be, it all lines up. It makes me so happy. It's like all of my OCD check boxes have been marked. It feels like I cannot wait to go out on a ride and layer up and layer down and have that same look throughout. And initially with the outerwear, like the jackets, I thought, oh man, you know, people don't want crazy jackets and whatever. But then I thought, if you like this design and you're buying a jacket from this custom team store, you're probably going to want the design. Like anybody can go get a black jacket. In fact, I already have one from LEL, the Gibraltar jacket. It's the same one, but it's just all black and it's great. Like the jacket's incredible, but I'm, I was thinking that most people would already have an item like that. And if you bought it from the store, why not have the design on it? Especially when the the bibs in the lower half of this kit is a little bit more simple. You know, it's weird. Like with the summer store, uh, with that white Tobo design, I was really unsure whether or not I liked the design on the leg band. And I'm curious to see what people thought. I mean, tons of people ordered it. Like that store was so successful. And even when I look at photos, I'm like, the kit looks good. Like It just looks good. But do I, like would I have done it any differently. And I think the leg band was something I wanted to remove. And I wanted to make the D logo the only thing on the leg besides the LEL logo as well, but have them kind of line up, make sure the D is more pronounced and bigger and have it be clean. So if you are rocking the full kit top to bottom, it's not like too much, you know, and, and maybe this is a personal preference thing. Like I've never been a guy to like match my shoes with my hat, with my belt, with my whatever. Like I like a little contrast. You know, I want things to be, what's the, uh, I'm air quoting here, coordinated. Not like too matchy, but coordinated. Uh, I don't know if that's the right term. 
And I I think that's what we accomplished with this store. And so I'm pumped about it. I want to run down the items with you guys and remind you that you can shop this store up until October 30th uh, through the link that's in the description. But we have the men's El Capitan. Excuse me. I'm just going to say the name of the product because we have men's and women's cuts for every single item, which is super cool that LEL does. But we have the El Capitan jersey and the Solana jersey. These are the short sleeve options. The L cap is the race fit. It's got some compression. The Solana is more relaxed. It doesn't really have compression, but it's still tight. Like it's a form fitting kit the way it should be. And so I would say if you want something that's more race aggressive, go for the L cap. If you want something that's a little bit more casual, everyday use, actually going to the coffee shop, uh, Solana jersey is perfect. Now we also have that jersey in long sleeve which is one of my favorite items from LEL period. It's just a long sleeve, non-thermal jersey. And in the changing seasons where I live, it's like the perfect thing because it's it's something you would wear when you don't really even want arm warmers or a base layer, but it also feels just a little too cold for a normal kit. Like it's this perfect medium. And then if you layer it up and down with a vest, it gives you a lot of options as well. But I'll tell you, The next item for this store is probably my favorite because of the months I'm going into, which is winter. It's the Marin T1 long sleeve thermal jersey. This is, it's it's a lightweight thermal that is so comfortable that removing, like, like putting this thermal on and not bringing arm warmers with you and then having the jacket or the vest layer up or layer down, or even having a base tank top layer and then throwing this thermal on top. There's just something about the functionality of this item that it it makes me want to wear it every single day in the winter. You know, if it's not going to be above like 55 degrees or something, this is the perfect item to start your kit with because like I said, you can easily layer it up or layer it down and it's just so comfortable. And, you know, everyone's got to have arm warmers. There's days where arm warmers are perfect, but we can all admit that it's not the most comfortable layer to put on. It's not really a big deal, but again, the less seams and the less like constricting pinch points, the better. And that's why I love this Jersey. It's all the warmth that you want without any of that. It's just so freaking comfortable. So that's my, my number one recommended item. Now we go to uh, some of the bibs. We have the L cap bibs, both men's and women's. I made this as the only option because they've been the most popular. In the past, we've done the Laguna Seca bibs as well, but I do really prefer these, and I've noticed through orders that people prefer them as well. So they are more of a race fit bib, but the chamois is so comfortable. And the way that they do the seam where the logo is on on the lower part of the leg just looks really clean. And so that's why I chose these bibs. There's an 11 inch option for the inseam and a nine and a half inch. There's sizing recommendations, but to give you guys an idea, I'm five nine. I wear the 11 inch, and they they are as long as I'd want them to be. And I've tried the nine and a half, and they're just like a little too short. I've really preferred the 11, um, but that's up to you guys. If you're under five nine, the nine and a half would probably be a good fit. If you're over five nine, I would definitely recommend the 11 inch uh, inseam, unless you're old school. We got some old school like style people that <laughs> this probably sounds bad, but they just want you know shorter like mid thigh uh, bibs. If if you want that, rock it. Show a little thigh. I don't. You know what? It's not. I, it's not that I don't even care. I like it. Okay, I'm a looking and I'm a liking. 
So if you want to throw that thigh out there, you do it. Okay. So I'm not going to hold you back. Um, anyways, we're going to go, you know, there's just some things I say and regret on this podcast. And I think that was one of them. Okay. We're back to the men's, uh, T2 bib tights. This is the full length tights. These are incredible. Uh, everything I just said about arm warmers in the, the long sleeve thermal Jersey goes for these long sleeve or the long leg tights. Not having leg warmers and that pinch point around your thigh is amazing. These are so comfortable and they're so warm. And I've noticed because they're cut, they're cut like right above your ankle. If you wear these with wool socks on whatever day that's cold enough to wear these, which for me, it'd be like sub 55 degrees where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to expose my knees all day. If you wear these with some wool socks, you are going to be so stoked. (laughs) Like again, just such comfortable kit. Like if I'm rolling out and it's 50 degrees and I have maybe, let's just say it's 40 in the highs 50. I have my long sleeve thermals. I have my long, I have maybe a base layer, my long sleeve thermal kit, and then a, a vest or maybe my long sleeve thermal jersey in the vest. Oh, I love it, man. Love these layers. Okay. Then we're going to go to the Santa Ana road suit. There's both 11 and nine and a half inch inseam options and the women's option. Uh, it's a one-piece kit, taking our top and bottom design, putting it together into a race suit. Um, 155 bucks. I'm so stoked on that. It looks so good, and I'm excited to get one. I've actually never had a road suit, a full aero suit. Uh, so that was highly requested, and we got it. Now, for the outerwear, we have the men's Gibraltar jacket and the men's Gibraltar vest. Now, these are the very like like very minimal outerwear options. Um, if you wanted like an easy to pack vest, um, something that has venting in the back, no pockets, that's what you're getting. Same thing with the jacket. It's like the same exact item, one with sleeves and one without sleeves, but they both fit snug. And that's what I love about this men's Gibraltar jacket. Even the like the wristbands on this will fit your wrist snug, so that you aren't nothing's flopping around, nothing is sliding or moving. And you are keeping some extra warmth in that way. Like if I have my thermal gloves on and it's really cold, I'll typically put the wristband over the gloves and I feel like it just kind of insulates everything even better. Uh, but yeah, the Gibraltar outerwear is really nice. It's just minimal. There's no, uh, like thermal in it. It's just a perfect kind of like windbreaker and insulator, uh, to put over the top of an actual thermal kit. Then we go down to the one accessory, which is the neck gaiter. It's beautiful. It's cool. It's the same design. Um, it's not going to line up perfectly to the kit, but it's also like a random neck gaiter with the same colors and logos and topography, and it, it looks sick. So check it all out. I'm really, really pumped on this store. We have till October 30th, and I just am really grateful that you guys are repping, and I'm happy that this is actually a demand of the dialed fan because – I love making these things. Like designing them is so fun. And I don't know when the next store is going to be. There's some like back end changes going on that I'm like just trying to figure out, okay, you know, this is a process that takes like a month of design and then you're getting sent the actual samples. And then we have the store and I got to advertise for it. And then we have the the shipping window. So it's not as easy as being like, hey, next month, let's do it. And so that's why I want to just not put my finger on any dates for next orders and, and I'm not doing this as like a marketing thing. Like, I don't know when it's going to come back. You better get it now. You know, this is a one-time deal that's never going to happen again. I, I'm really not trying to do that. 
So anyways, I hope that uh, you guys understand. And I also hope that my neighbor's weed whacker that just fired up isn't going to be too loud because we're going to talk about the thank ride really quick before I let you go. And I get to my haircut, which is rescheduled for the morning. You know, I'm not really a fan of the haircut in the morning. I like it as a, as a little cap on the day. It's nice to sit there and think about my toil and my, uh, my work throughout the day that I did or did not do. Things that went good, things that went bad. I like to sit in that barber chair and reflect. I don't have time to reflect. It's the morning. I got work to do. Okay? So anyways, I'm doing it because I might have played a little bit of hooky and went mountain biking in Truckee yesterday. It was incredible. It was so fun. I'm happy I did it, but got a lot of work to do today. So now let's talk about the thank ride, even though, oh man, my neighbor, I'm telling you, he just got some new yard equipment and I think he's so stoked about it because the way he, it's just like the way he fires everything up is with so much more authority than someone who is reluctant to do the yard work would do. Like most people, they just, I don't know, dude, it's, it it just sounds like a little sloppy. Like you're out there mowing your lawn. You're like, I don't want to be doing this. This guy fires it up with some pride, which I respect a little bit, but it was it all started on the same day. It never happened, and then all of a sudden, he had a lawnmower, a weed whacker, an edger, and a leaf blower, all. And he just took his sweet time doing everything. Okay, anyways, that's, that's my rant. This is the problems of now having the studio at home. Um, but then again, this kind of stuff would happen in my studio too. We had garbage men that were so loud. I had people coming up to the door constantly, like all this random stuff. So anyways, uh, oh, they were exploding dynamite when they were building the apartments behind the, the commercial space I was in. Do you guys remember that? Like I would be literally doing a back squat and they would explode rock and it would shake the entire place. And I would almost drop that thing. It was so sketchy. So Anyways, we're back. I think he turned it off for now. Let's talk about the thank ride. <laughs> so perfect Thanksgiving morning ride. This started because I just, I didn't really have anything fun to do Thanksgiving morning. And I didn't like that. And the problem with Thanksgiving is that it's a very non-committal day if you don't have a good plan. So every, you know, it's busy. Everyone has stuff going on with their families. And so if you don't really like nail something, and get people to commit, then something cool doesn't happen. And that happened year and year and year over and over again, with the exception of a few years in between that showed me potential. So it made me realize we need to do something fun. I'm getting a group together. We're going to ride up to one of the best coffee shops in town. We're going to have a pastry, a coffee, ride back down the hill, and make sure we're home in time to not piss our wives off. That was like a very big thing. I was like, I'm not going to put extra stress on someone's schedule by running anybody late. So I've been always very uh, strict about the time frame. Now, with that said, there are two things that I feel like could have improved in the last couple of think rides. Number one, I think the route could be a little bit longer. We've had this route that's amazing, but it's like 16 miles up to the coffee shop, 16 miles back. I'd like to, I'd like to get it over 20, you know, just like a little, you know, 20 up, hour up, hour back. I think that'd be cool. And so I think we're going to do that this year because I don't have my studio space and that was where we started. So a big question was like, where do we start this thing? Okay. We want it a little bit longer. Well, thankfully we know Matt from AE service who uh, has a shop in Folsom and he's been on the last couple of rides that we've done and he's uh, just super involved in our community. So we're like, dude, if we could start it at your shop, 
it would solve the, the problem of having the ride too short and also not having a location. So that's the plan is to start at a service and move the start time up to 7 a.m. so that we have plenty of time to make the extra miles. Now, what's cool about that location too is that the road leading out from his shop is very straightforward. And I think that's going to be good when we have a group of hopefully uh, 50 or more people. I know in the last few years, we've had just under 50 to start with. And so if we could roll out easy, people are shaking out the cobwebs. Sounds like we're going to have some coffee from Kingdom Coffee that's right next door to his shop beforehand. You know, we can just ease our way into it and it's not going to be sketchy at all, which that that's really what I want. And uh, so I think that start location is going to be perfect. The other thing that we've wanted to change about this ride is really the overall goal and how can we impact our community besides giving everyone just a fun thing to do Thanksgiving morning. And so I've been talking to Chaz Halbert, who has partnered on this ride the last couple of years and is partnering again. He's also kind of like led the group and paced it. Well, he really wanted to do some type of donation for a local uh, nonprofit. And the local nonprofit we've come up with is Clipped In for Life. This is, or the Clipped In. Uh, this is the race series that happens locally. They do a ton of community events. We know the owner, Clint, and what he wants to do with it is even so much more than they're already doing, which is saying a lot because they, they do so much, but it really always comes back to finances. So we're hoping to give back to him with a optional donation. There's still, there's not going to be any sign up or registration for this ride. Uh, you, you are not obligated to donate, but we do want to try and use our resources and pull them together to help out clipped in and everything that they're trying to accomplish. And especially in our local community. So uh, Chaz is going to be matching donations up to $500 and I'm saying it on the podcast now to hold him accountable. <laughs> Not that he would try and get out of it, uh, but our goal is to raise a couple thousand dollars for clipped in for life. And so we'll have that. And we're also going to have the enjoy cycling club. Who's had a huge impact on our local community come out. I've been talking with Vince Murdoch who started enjoy cycling. And again, this is just another really strong force in the local community that has had an impact and a lot of positivity on, on people's lives. So we're trying to just get everybody together, go for an incredible Thanksgiving morning ride, give back to a local nonprofit who impacts our cycling community, and then call it a day, and then go hang out with our families and eat more. It's, it, I'm so stoked on this year's Think Ride, and we're going to be having actual uh, like, like uh, advertising for it, I guess, come out November 1st. And we're going to pretty much wait till then, I guess, to start posting like newsletters and uh, the stuff on Instagram and doing all that. So stay tuned. November 1st, you're going to start hearing about it. Then you're going to hear about Everest Rome. Oh, oh and, and you're going to start hearing about my uh, off-season road program too. There's, there's going to be a lot going on. So uh, that's it, you guys. I hope you have an incredible week. I'm really excited for next week's episode. I think we're going to be doing a Q&A, so stay tuned for my Instagram. If you have any questions that you want to ask me, I will gladly answer them for you. And so uh, that's it. Crush it. I always have a hard time ending these podcasts because I, I just I don't know how to do it where it's not abruptly. Maybe I should have my neighbor come up and just light his leaf blower into this microphone. Oh my gosh, I can't hear myself think. This guy is killing me. All right, guys, I, I almost said I love you. <laughs> like, you know when you think you're talking to your wife on the phone, but it's actually like your friend or your, I don't know, somebody random, and you're like, okay, I love you. Talk to, and Yeah, anyways, 
That's what's happening right now. Until next week, start moving forward.